What a blessing uh, to be able to sing those words. Uh, this is my Father's world, and to speak of God as our Father. And that's going to be very much the theme at the heart of our sermon uh, this morning from Galatians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me to Galatians chapter 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles here, it's on page 974. We've been working our way through this letter and come now to chapter 4 as Paul continues uh, to teach us about uh, the temporary role of the law, which is good, holy, and righteous, but it served a temporary purpose for God's people. But now as they have come into the fullness of their sonship, into the freedom of their sonship, we're speaking of the church today. So Galatians chapter 4, we'll read the first seven verses. This is the holy and inspired word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So far from his holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the marvel and the wonder and the staggering reality of our justification, of us being made right with God, is that we no longer have in heaven a judge, but a father. That's the pivot point. That's the great turn in the work of Jesus Christ. We no longer have, you no longer have in heaven, if you are in Christ, a judge. But if you are in Christ, you now have in heaven a father who loves you, a father who cares for you, a father who is bringing you home to dwell with him forever and ever. That is the staggering reality, the bedrock foundation of the Christian life. This is what Jesus Christ alone has accomplished. And that, that, this is what we have been speaking about for a number of weeks now from this letter. The Apostle Paul is reminding us that that transition from having a judge in heaven to a father in heaven was not accomplished by our own performance. It was not accomplished by our adherence to the law. It was not accomplished by the act of circumcision in the Old Testament. It wasn't accomplished by keeping certain calendar days. It wasn't accomplished by avoiding certain foods. It wasn't accomplished by any good work that we possibly could have done that God said, okay, I'll take him, I'll take her to be my child. No, that pivot from judge to father, the Apostle Paul has been so adamant about enforcing in our minds that that pivot takes place only and solely by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He died for our sins 
And he was raised for our justification, that we might be made right with God. And therefore, as, as we've been talking about before, Abraham himself, who had been given the promise long, long ago, looked forward to Jesus' day for this very reason. He rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Because for all who have died from Abraham onward, in faith, believing the promise, have been received and saved ultimately by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's on on behalf of Christ's work for us that we no longer have in heaven a judge whom we fear, but a father who loves us and cares for us. Now, yes, we may have had earthly fathers who have not been examples of this, and it, and it might be difficult for us to uh, receive that at times, to think of our own earthly fathers. Uh, yet, what we read about in Scripture is that God, our Heavenly Father, is truly a, a perfect Father who cares for us, uh, who knows our every need, uh, who provides for us, and who loves us so deeply that He sent His only Son uh, to save us and redeem us. And so when we come to think of God as our Father, we need to come to think about Him as He's made Himself known um, in His Word. And praise God for the the godly fathers that we can look out here and see, Uh, the men who have exemplified that as well. Father who cares, loves, protects, provides uh, for His family. This is what a true Father is. This is what God is for us. And so this is just so foundational to what the Apostle Paul is driving at here. And something that he again wants to reinforce into our minds, right? It's where this whole text that we had just read in Galatians 4 is driving towards, right? As it says in verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, right? That we might know that reality, that we might experience that reality. He sends his Spirit, the very Spirit of his Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the Spirit, crying on our behalf. And causing us then to respond in the same way, right? That's where this passage is driving to. Now, we're going to work our way there um, in the moments that we have. And to do so, we're going to consider just two brief, um, not necessarily brief, but two broad, I should say, points. Uh, The time of slavery, as Paul talks about in the first three verses, and then the time of sonship in the remaining verses of our text here. So two broad points, the time of slavery and the time of sonship, right? It's moving towards that, that glorious uh, apex of our salvation, the adoption as sons of God, the assurance of being his children. But we need to begin first, as the Apostle Paul does, with the time of slavery. And this comes out in verses 1 through 3. And in many ways, before going through these verses uh, pretty closely, Keep in mind that the Apostle Paul earlier in Galatians 1 had said this. Galatians 1 verse 4, speaking of what Christ has done, it says that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us. And think about that word, to deliver, to set free, uh, to rescue us from the present evil age. From the present evil age. And in many ways, what Paul is going to do here in these verses, in talking about this time of slavery, he's going to explain further what it meant to have been enslaved to the present evil age, what Christ has delivered us from, what Christ has set us free from. 
And so here Paul is, is expanding upon that broad notion that he had given us earlier, that Christ delivered us by giving himself in death on the cross for us to deliver us from the present evil age. Right? And so Paul is expounding upon that and explaining that further. And he does so using this um, interesting imagery. Um, and there's some debate whether this imagery of an heir uh, being under guardians and taskmasters um, is simply drawn from uh, his own context in the Roman Empire, um, or if it's drawn from the Old Testament. It seems to be a mix of both as we go through this. But I do think predominant in Paul's mind as he thinks about Christ delivering us and delivering his people from the present evil age, he has in mind the exodus of the Old Testament. He has in mind Moses, right, who was the Lord's mediator in the Old Testament, who delivered Israel out of Egypt and brought them into a promised land. I think that's behind much of Paul's thinking here as we're going to come to see as we walk through this. So notice that as Paul opens up this time of slavery, he says, I mean that the heir, verse 1, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. What the Apostle Paul is getting at here, first and foremost, I think has to do with the history of God's people, specifically under the Old Testament prior to Christ's coming. As he looks back and he sees them as a people who, as he says here, um, were no different from a slave, though the heir of everything, right? God's people in the Old Testament had God's promise, right? They had the promise that God would provide for them a land flowing with milk and honey. And that this land was described in such exuberant and luscious terms Because primarily it was to be a place where God would dwell with his people. Specifically, he would would dwell with Israel, who was, as he calls them throughout the Old Testament, his firstborn, his son. Think about Moses as he goes before Pharaoh. What words does the Lord tell Moses to say to Pharaoh? Of course, he says, let my people go. But other times, when Moses goes before Pharaoh, he says that the Lord demands that he let his son go. Let his firstborn son go. Right Throughout the Old Testament, Israel, as God's people, is referred to as a son, God's son. Of course, not his eternal son, but as one, in a sense, adopted into God's family. One brought in out of the nations of the world that had fallen into idolatry and paganism and rebellion against God. And in darkness, God adopts a family to be his son, Israel, to be his. And we see this further when it says that, verse 2, or the end of verse 1, though he is the owner of everything. It's interesting, you can also translate this phrase, which others have done, um, rather than saying, though he is the owner of everything, uh, you can translate it as, though he is the Lord of all. Though he is the Lord of all. And I do think that when um, Paul says this, uses this language, he again has in mind the promise that was given to Abraham. For example, if you turn back to Romans chapter 4, or you can listen, but Romans chapter 4, notice how the Apostle Paul understands the promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. 
Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's very interesting, right? The Apostle Paul, as he looks back to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, recognizes that what was promised to Abraham was not merely the land of Canaan, but the world. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, that he would be Lord of all. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at, even when he opens up here in Galatians, I believe. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the Lord of all. Right? This is the promise given to God's people, back, uh, given all the way back in Abraham's day in Genesis chapter 12. It's the same um, idea that's present in Psalm 8, uh, something else to consider. Psalm 8 reflects back on uh, the creation and looks forward to this figure, this Adam-like figure, who would reign over the whole world, who would be Lord of all. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what, are man, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him, notice the kingly language, Lord of all, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the fields. The birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And these various realms that the psalmist is looking at are the realms that God creates back in Genesis chapter 1. From the skies, right, to the land, to the seas, and all that inhabits them. God is seeing man positioned as crowned king, lord over all of it. Now, this isn't our sermon text, but you can recognize maybe this afternoon, uh, go exploring the New Testament to see in at least four different places this psalm, in terms of who fulfills this psalm, right? who is the one who is crowned over all and brings about and truly fulfills the commission given to man in the beginning, all of those instances in the New Testament are applied to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul is going to talk about later in Galatians 4. He is the one who fulfills the mandate, and his church fulfills that mandate only in him, in Christ, right? This is Paul's point. In Christ alone are we then Lord of all. In Christ alone are we then heirs of the world promised uh, to Abraham, something that we have not yet fully come into, but something that awaits us as God's people. The Heidelberg Catechism summarizes it for us when it says that we share in Christ's anointing. And therefore, one day we will reign with him. And this is the catechism's words. We will reign with him over all creation forever and ever. There is no reigning if it's not with him. There there is no being Lord of all, heirs, child, if there's not for Christ. Now, 
We'll say more about that in a moment. But I think, again, all of this Paul is getting at when he says that as long as he child, um, as long as he is a child, the heir is no different from a slave, though he is the Lord of all. Paul's looking back to that promise to Abraham, but say, recognizing that, they, that Abraham and his sons have not yet come into the fullness of that promise because there would be a time of bondage, a time of, sla- of slavery. And in fact, this is what was promised to Abraham, or at least foretold to Abraham. If you want to turn back or listen, we see this in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, again, Paul, uh, uh, Abraham had been given this promise that he would be Lord of all, heir of the cosmos, But think about the way in which Abraham and his offspring were to come into the inheritance, right? How was Abraham to receive the inheritance? How was he to take possession of the world? It's an important question to think about. Well, notice what God says in Genesis 15, verse 13. After God makes, is in the midst of making this covenant with Abraham, it says there that the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace." And you shall be buried in a good old age. Again, notice the path of coming into the inheritance. It's not an easy one. And it's not one of ease. And it's not one of comfort. The path by which God's people received the inheritance went through Egypt. And it went through a time of bondage. And it went through a time in which they had to serve Pharaoh under a heavy yoke. And it was difficult. And the Lord had to redeem them and set them free. He had to break the bond, break the the chains of Pharaoh, and, and set his people free, deliver them. It's the same picture the Apostle Paul is getting at here. The heir, as long as he is child, is no different from a slave. But he is under guardians and managers, taskmasters, until the day set by his father. Right? Again, Paul has that imagery in mind. Yet he recognizes that it's not merely from Egypt and Pharaoh that God will ultimately set his people free. That was meant to be a picture. That was meant to foreshadow something greater. The greater deliverance is that God has redeemed his people and delivered his people not from merely from Egypt, but from the present evil age. Everything that encompasses us in darkness, the idolatry, the paganism, the death, the darkness that defines the age, God delivers us from out of bondage. Right? This is just a common theme all uh, throughout Paul's writing. Uh, the fact that it's God himself who will bring and deliver and set free Though his people for a time are subject, though his people for a time must suffer. Read First Peter, the whole, the whole letter, right? 
Peter is encouraging the church, saying that it is through suffering and it's through tribulation that you enter the kingdom, that you receive the inheritance, that that marks you as a child of Abraham, one of true faith. That is the path that Scripture lays out from Abraham, one who faced obstacle after obstacle. It was not a a slow incline until he reached glory. No, Abraham faced obstacle and impossibility after impossibility. We read from Romans 4 before, where Paul says that Abraham was to be the heir of the world. Well, Paul also there reminds us that Abraham received the promise while his own body wasted away in death. Right? He became too old to bear children, yet the Lord promised that he would have an heir. And Sarah's womb, it says, was literally a grave. It was empty. She was beyond childbearing. And in the midst of that impossibility, in the midst of death, and even through death, God fulfills his word. That's the testimony of Scripture over and over and over again. We, the people of God, heirs of the promise, sons of God, do not receive the promise merely in an inclining way of glory that's easy, but rather... We receive the promise through suffering. We receive the promise by identifying ourselves with the cross of Jesus Christ, taking it up, bearing it, and knowing that the end of the cross is not ultimately the grave, but it is a kingdom of everlasting glory. That is the testimony of Scripture. I mean, millions of examples, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but many examples come to my mind. One being uh, the, the three boys of, of the three Hebrew. Three Israelite boys in Babylon, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the Lord who delivers them from the fiery furnace. It's the Lord who brings them through that and delivers them into new life. Right? It's, it's this common picture over and over and over again of God giving his people a promise that you are sons, heirs, heirs of the world. And then it's through much tribulation that the kingdom, the the prize is received. All right, so Paul says this, right? He's under guardians and managers until the day set by his father, right? There is a day set that the father will allow the son and bring the son into the fullness of his inheritance, but there is a time of slavery. There's a time of being under these managers. Now, we recognize then that it's the father who determines these things, right? It's the father who sets them. And then notice also, and I'll say more about that in a moment, but notice verse 3. He now applies this and says, in the same way, right, we've been talking about, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And the word translated here, elementary principles, um, has kind of stumped a number of commentators and people interpreting this passage. There's a lot of uh, literature written uh, on this on this very phrase. What does Paul mean by the elementary principles? Uh, you can simply just translate it as the elements. Well, I think, and not to go into all the details of this, I do think that what Paul speaks of the elements here, he's speaking about the elements as we would think of them, um, the, ba- the basic building blocks of the world around us. Um, even as they understood it then as earth, wind, fire, and water. The thing is, though, is that in Paul's day, and even in our own day, these created things, 
the, the creation around us, uh, was viewed in some sense as divine, viewed in some sense as, um, as, as deities. For example, one ancient Jewish commentator, uh, Philo, had said this, speaking about the elements. He had said, can we compare those who revere, those who worship the elements, same word used by Paul here, earth, water, air, fire, which have received different names from different peoples who call fire, um, Hephaestus, I don't know that name, but it's apparently a, 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 a divine view of fire, because it's kindled by air, or because it's kindled, or they call air Hera, because it's lifted up and exalted on high, or they call water Poseidon, perhaps because it is drunk, and they call the earth Demeter, because it appears to be the mother of all plants and animals. I do think when Paul then, when he says that we were once enslaved to the elements of the world, the Apostle Paul is talking in very general terms, we can understand it, as idolatry, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And you had a people who had began to deify the elements, the water, the air, right? As we can, Poseidon's probably the most familiar name uh, to us, right? This idea of a god. And so the Apostle Paul is saying here is that all of us at one point were, in, were captured and enslaved to the idolatry that defined and marked the present evil age. So the Apostle Paul says, maybe in more familiar terms, in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were enslaved to the elements of the world. It's very much parallel terms, though highlighting some different elements to it. And so Paul is getting at here. And again, this is something that God warned his people about, and he told his people about all the way back in Deuteronomy, that though he had given them his law, and the law would sort of stave off sin, and the law would kind of keep them as a guardian for a time. It could not deliver them from the idols. It could not take children of darkness and make them children of God. It could not set them free who were enslaved to the elements of the world, right? The law was never intended for that purpose. Again, Paul is getting at that uh, here because the false teachers who had crept into the church were telling we're telling them that, in fact, the law would redeem them, the law would save them. But Paul, as he's going to go on to say later, is to say, if you go back to the law of the Old Testament, well, you're simply going back into slavery. You're going back to Egypt. You're going back into bondage. Christ has set you free. And so, again, the, the law itself looked forward to this and teaches them this. For example, back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27, God warns his people who had been given his law. He says to them, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of the elements, right? Gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. This is what Paul is getting at here. Enslaved to the elements of the world. Enslaved to the idols. Enslaved to that which was made of stone and wood. Made by human hands that can neither see nor smell nor taste 
or here, right? All of these things, Paul is saying that at one point, we were under them. At one point, we were in bondage and enslaved to these things. But, and this brings us to our second point, right? There was a time of slavery, but praise God that he has acted, and praise God that he has come to set us free, that the time of slavery would not be forever and perpetual, but a time of sonship would come. Right? God has acted. Um, God has come to deliver and set his people free. Uh, this is the whole point. Again, just like Ephesians 2, again, more familiar to us. Um, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, right? But God, because of the, being rich in mercy, right, towards us in Christ. It's the same movement here. God has redeemed us from a life serving idols, doing what the law could never do, doing what, saving us from what our hands could never deliver us from, no matter what we fashioned and made by them. God has done it. And again, that's Paul's point over and over again, that we might look to him as our deliverer, look to him. It's Christ who delivers us from the present evil age. If I give one more example from elsewhere in, in, in Paul's writings of this transition, not only Ephesians 2, uh, but also the way Paul speaks of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1. Again, the same transition from slavery to sonship, from dead to made alive, from serving idols to now serving the living God. 1 Thessalonians, Paul um, speaks of their conversion in these terms. He says, verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait as heirs, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Right? It's the same idea. Paul constantly gets at it in different ways. Think about it as a diamond with many beautiful facets to it, right? He wants us to see various aspects of it, of the redemption that Christ works. He takes us from serving idols to now serving the living God. And that is what Paul is talking about here, verse 4. But when the full, in Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come, when the time that the Father had set had come, right, the one who was sovereign over all the events that transpired, the one who was sovereign over Abraham's life, who was sovereign over the life of Israel, and who was sovereign over your life and the life of the church, when he as the one who is the Lord of history brought about the fullness of time, the fullness of time had come, what took place? God sent forth his son. God sent his son, the one dearest to him, his eternal son who was with him from all eternity past, loved by him and loving him perfectly in return. Right? He sends his son. And Paul wants to emphasize the fact that it's the son of God who is sent. God sends his son into our situation, into the present evil age, to find a people enslaved 
to the elements, enslaved to what man's hands have made, enslaved to these things. Right? He comes and enters in. It says he, was, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, that he might take on our full experience, that he might take on a human nature, and also that his, that his redemption that he works might apply not just to a particular people, but to all people indiscriminately, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul earlier had spoken about those under the law being under a curse. And Christ comes under that curse to identify himself with us, to come into our plight, to come into our situation. And he comes to do what we could never do. He comes and enters so that we who could never burst the bonds of our enslavement and of the elements and of idolatry, he might do that. He might set his people free. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem. To redeem those who were under the law. Christ came because we were in a hopeless situation. Christ came because though God had given his people various means, even the law itself as a good thing, the law could not save them. The law could not redeem them. The law couldn't set them free. But Christ identifies himself with us and he sets us free. This is what Paul's point, again, over and over and over again. It is he who delivers us from the present evil age. It's he who loved us unto death. It's he who gave himself for us. He has done what the law could never do. The law stood outside of us as a standard that we could not meet. But Christ comes to accomplish a true salvation, to redeem those who are under the law so that, right, as of the purpose, you know, why does he come to redeem us? Why does he come to set us free? So that we might receive adoption as sons that we might no longer have in heaven a judge but a father that we might receive adoption as sons this is what the work of Jesus Christ has accomplished he has made us sons of God and therefore he's going to say because we are sons we are heirs heirs of God heirs in Christ heirs of the world And like Abraham and like all the heirs that have come before, the way into the kingdom, the way into the inheritance is one of enduring trial, the one of enduring tribulation, but trusting that God our Father will bring us safely through. And so this is what Christ has accomplished. And he alone, again, can accomplish this. We cannot make ourselves sons who have rebelled against God. We cannot make ourselves heirs of heaven, heirs of the world, no matter how much we can accumulate in this life. Christ alone, because it's to him the promise has been given. And the promise is for all who believe in him and trust him. How am I in Christ? How am I, how am I one with him, identified with him? By faith. Again, Paul's point over and over again. By faith, by believing in him, as I believe in Jesus Christ, I receive in him the benefit of adoption as sons. 
And this isn't just something that God leaves sort of apart from us or outside of us, but he causes us then to experience this. He seals sonship in us by his spirit. Notice what it says, verse 6. Because you are sons, I think last week I had said you can ask Leah, ask Josh about the tense of this verb here, present active indicative. It's a statement of fact, not saying you need to become sons, but he's saying you are continuously at this present moment and going into the future, you are sons. And because you are, God sent the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit seals to us our sonship, that we are heirs of God, that we are heirs of Christ, that we are heirs of the world. And God causes us then, because of his great love for us, to know that reality. The same Spirit whom Christ received upon being raised from the dead, and in his fullness, God, he sends to his church to indwell us. Therefore, The Spirit testifies to this marvelous reality that as sure as Christ is the Son of God, so surely are you who have believed in Jesus. Your sonship is no more in question than the sonship of Jesus Christ. Your inheritance is no more in question than the fact that Jesus will come into the fullness of his inheritance. This is where we find our assurance and our comfort in this life. Not from our, our situation, right? As you said before, often our situation will militate against the fact that we are heirs and have an inheritance. Right? Often our, our situation will, if we just merely see with our eyes around us, not trusting God's word, will seem to say you're not an heir. Your, your, your future is not glorious. What awaits you is not life even life eternal, but death and destruction, right? right? This is what our situation will often testify to us, whether individually or even as a church, right? A church in which we can be pressed in by enemies all around us. And it can seem as if the church is waning and the church is failing and the church will be overcome one day. The world grows wicked. The world grows hateful. The world uh, attacks the church, And our situation, again, can militate against that reality that God has spoken. But the assurance is not our situation. It's not what what it looks like around us. It is the fact that God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts. The fact that God has sealed our sonship by His Spirit. Our assurance is not our situation, but our assurance comes from looking to Jesus Christ, who has been glorified. It cannot be undone. It cannot be reversed. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven so that no matter what comes against you, because of your faith, because of the gospel, because of Christ, no matter what comes against the church because of our faith, because of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel, cannot reverse the course that God has sent our, uh, has sent our lives on. One that is to glory. And though it may go through very difficult times, the guarantee is that Christ has already gone before us and our sonship is no more in question than his. Our inheritance is no more in question than his. 
That's why the Apostle Peter encourages the church, right? And tells us that we have an inheritance laid up for us in heaven. And Jesus tells us it's where neither moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves cannot go. The world cannot steal that from you. And you cannot steal our inheritance as the church. And therefore, we have no reason to compromise. And we have no reason to look for our security and salvation outside of Jesus Christ alone. Again, these uh, false teachers were saying Christ is good, but he's not enough. No, Christ is enough. To have him is enough. And therefore, to trust him and to lean on him is the only safe course in this life. Not to try avoiding suffering, not to try avoiding standing for Christ in this world, no matter what may come. That's not safe. What's truly safe is leaning on Christ, trusting Christ, believing him, and knowing that the Spirit of Christ himself, the Son of God, dwells in me. And it is the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. It's a Spirit who can speak and call out and say, My Father. It's by the Spirit we can sing this is my father's world and be assured of that reality and so to come to a conclusion here we'll conclude with paul's own words verse seven so therefore in light of really the past basically four or five sermons this is the big grand conclusion paul draws he says so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God, that is who you are. Let us therefore live this way as sons of God, as heirs. And therefore, let us not hold so tightly to the things of this world as if this is our whole existence. Let us live and walk by faith and not by sight, trusting that God has promised for us an inheritance in a heavenly country, a new Jerusalem, where neither moth nor rust will destroy, where thieves will never break in, but we will be with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from the present evil age and made us heirs, heirs through God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these staggering realities. Though our portion was once in this world that is passing away, that we were once enslaved to the elements, the idols of this world, that we were engulfed in this present evil age. Father, you have sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were once under the law. Father, thank you that in Christ we receive true sonship, and as sons we are heirs, heirs not of a world that is passing away, but of the world to come of the new creation that awaits us, one that is full of glory and full of majesty because it is full of your presence. And so, Father, make us long for that day more and more and to recognize truly who we are and therefore not to be tempted by the things of this world, but that we would know ourselves as your sons, filled with the spirit of your Son, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these realities. Cause us to walk by them and in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.